Okay, good morning. How are you all? You look a little little uncertain about that. Just ask the person next to you, am I okay? I just want to check you're all okay. Good. Good. Wonderful. Um, For those that don't know, my name's Graham. I'm part of the team here. I I live in the Royal Borough of Toledine (laughs) in the east of Worcester. The Queen sends her regards, so... And we're, we're going to look at Titus. Um, when I was very small, I had a teddy bear. And it was a white teddy bear. It was about that tall. And uh, his name was Timothy Titus, and, uh, uh, which I th- was rather sweet, isn't it? Um, and I w- wasn't a Christian household. And I, uh, so I, I grew up um, having this, this bear called Timothy Titus and not knowing why. And eventually, when I... I uh, uh, when I was a, a child, I became a Christian when I was a child, and I, I suddenly realized, oh, hang on, Timothy Titus, that's something to do with the, the Bible. And uh, so I asked my mum, who, as far as I knew, wasn't a Christian, uh, why she called it Timothy Titus. She didn't know. It just, she just did. So um, Titus, uh, it's not that it has a particularly special place in my heart because of my uh, rather lovely, sweet, white teddy bear, but um, it just always brings back memories of that. So if I start sobbing in the middle of it or... <laughs> You'll, you'll know why. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to, to try to look at some of chapter one, but I also want to try and explain a little bit about um, the type of writing that, that this is. One of the things we've been looking at during the year is different types of biblical literature. Um, narrative, whether it's telling a story, um, poetic or wisdom literature or something like that. Because when we understand what the literature is, it helps us understand uh, what's being written, uh, who it was written to, who wrote it, all those kind of things. So uh, we all know this is an epistle, and probably most of us know that an epistle is a letter. But this is a letter we're reading here. Um, So just for the sake of of covering the the details, um, and I'm still waiting, by the way, for a lovely monitor here, or maybe one at the back of the church, so I can see what's what's up there. I did wonder about trying to uh, put a, a mirror here, and I just thought, that's not going to work. You know, no. And if you break it, it's seven years bad luck. So who wants that? You know? um, that was a joke, by the way. Okay. So for those who are visitors and you didn't realize. Okay. Um, these are the epistles in, uh, in the New Testament. There are not what we would call letters. There aren't really any in the Old Testament. These are epistles in the New Testament. And as you see, most of them were written by Paul. Not all of them, um, but, but most of them. And they're, they, um, they're very different types of writing to uh, what we read in the rest of the Bible. So how should we read them? The first is, think blog more than text or email. It's, it's somebody's personal thoughts. They're, they're often addressing an issue or a series of issues. That was certainly the case for Paul. But... In our modern parlance, when, when was the last time you had a letter that was more than that was handwritten that was more than two sides? Well, the last time you wrote one, for that matter, quite a while since uh, since I received one or since I wrote one. These days, um, we we're all getting more and more used to what we call blogs, and uh, we're the, the average length of one of those. We'll either read it and it will be about 
between three, four hundred words, something like that. Some a bit longer, or we'll um, we'll watch one, which is a, apparently a vlog, um, video blog. It's crazy, but there you are. Um, that's what these are. So I think, to be honest, if Paul were around in our setting, uh, he'd have been doing that, and he'd have had live link-ups and all that kind of thing. This was the technology of the day. So he would write this letter. It would be taken by a, a human carrier to the, the place, and some of them are written to an individual, as Titus is, and some of them are written to churches or to a group of churches. And because he only wrote one copy, he would write it, and it would either get carried around and read to the different churches at different times, or else people would, would make copies of it, and that's why we have a lot of copies of some of these writings. Um, they're used for encouraging, teaching, explaining, and occasionally telling people off. Um, Galatians is a good example of that. 1 Corinthians is a good example of that. Um, and there's some other things. And uh, some of the, the way that the language is translated for us comes across as, as quite strong. And uh, trying to understand the tone with which it's written and with which it was read is, is quite important. And I think to be honest, as a church, as the general church, we've not always done that. So Paul has, uh, we've not always done it well, so Paul has come across as quite a, a harsh figure, as quite a, a bad-tempered, sort of grumpy old bloke. Um, and, and that's not true at all. Paul's an incredibly passionate believer, um, a man of great integrity and great feeling and love for Jesus. And you really have to read his letters and the letters of the, the other writers in the light of what you can see in their character from the narrative descriptions. Otherwise, we misread the letter. And uh, Titus is a, an example of that. There are things in Titus that we will discover both today and in the next couple of weeks that over the centuries... The, the church has taken particular views on and I think really has led the church into all kinds of um, unhelpful ways of thinking, certainly about leadership and about uh, the role of different people in leadership and all that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm trying to take a little bit longer over this so that you really understand what's behind these, uh, these writings. Uh, even though they're personal... Uh, they're often intended for wider circulation. So this is a personal letter, and here we are, almost 2,000 years later on, and, and it's a letter written to somebody else, and yet within it, there is such truth and principles that are applicable to us today. And that's, again, part of the skill of reading these things. It's, it's understanding that they need to be contextualised. People wrote letters differently in those days. I'm by no means an expert, but from the research that, that I've done to try and understand this, people wrote them differently. They had a different purpose in communicating through that way. We, we wouldn't tend to write a letter like this these days. So we have to, we have to appreciate that. We have to appreciate more about who the, the person is, who he's writing to, and all those kind of things. Then we get a bit more understanding, a bit more insight. If we just read it straight off, um, we can get all kinds of um, kind of skew with ideas, really.
So let's find out a bit about Titus. Does that say Titus behind me? Great, that's good news. Um, Titus was a companion of Paul. He appears in Acts, Corinthians, Galatians, uh, appears in Timothy, uh, and of course in Titus. So he's, he's spread around the, the New Testament more than you'd think. He doesn't feature highly, which is probably why he's not one of the first people that comes to mind when you, people say think of a New Testament character. But Titus was a companion of Paul. He'd travelled with Paul. He'd been through the same kind of hardships that Paul had been through, the same conditions. He understood about Paul. You can't go through those sort of journeys with somebody and not get to know someone really well, and vice versa. So this is a letter to a friend. Titus had been asked to stay in Crete. Now, that would be quite nice. If, if the church said to me, Graham... Would you like to go to Crete for a while? I would say, yes, please. Thanks very much. And have a nice little villa down on the, uh, on the shoreline. And, and I'd think of you all as I was there. Um, <laughs> Crete wasn't quite that sort of place in those days. Crete had a really bad reputation. It was, uh, it was a, because it was a, a center of, of trade and it was on a, uh, it was a stopping off point as you sailed across the, the Mediterranean. It was a real maritime centre, but it was a place where um, a lot of mercenaries had gathered, and Crete was known as a place, if you wanted some strong-arm characters in your army or your personal bodyguard or something, uh, and you had a bit of money to pay them, you went to Crete, and you could recruit a good number. And so Crete was, was a centre for that. And the, the people there were known as just being there to make money. They were regarded as liars. Uh, they were regarded as uh, simply self-interested. They were not nice people on the whole. Uh, and it, you, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't move there and think, oh, I'm going to retire to Crete um, and have a nice quiet life. You'd go somewhere else. Crete was like that, but the gospel had reached Crete, which is good news, isn't it? And if you remember from the Pentecost story, there were people from Crete in Jerusalem at the time. And so it is imagined that they got converted, they went back to Crete, and they began to, to set up churches. One of the things that was true was because there was very little teaching in the church, nobody really knew what a church was or, or how to, to set one up or, or you know, uh, how to arrange the chairs, important things like that, whether they had to have the, the coffee before or after the meeting, really important theological issues. And so... The, uh, the Apostle Paul was sending the people he trusted, the people who understood what they'd been taught, into these places to try and bring some order. Now, bearing in mind, uh, I'd already described Crete as a place full of uh, mercenaries and, and people you, you wouldn't trust as far as you could um, throw them, um, and you probably couldn't throw them that far. It was also a place with a lot of, of Jew, Jewish converts, so people who had converted to Judaism, and there's nothing as zealous as a new convert. And they were really zealous for the ways of Judaism, and in particular for some of the, the associated practices of circumcision and uh, the things that proved that you were really a Jew. And so the Christian church was trying to grow in this sort of environment. One in an environment of, of hedonism, really, and one an environment of legalism. And so T uh, Titus was sent into this 
to try and sort it out. There's no indication of whether he had a team with him, but I suspect that he did. Um, there's, no, there's no real indication of how old he was, although uh, Paul refers to him as his true son. So he may have been a younger guy like uh, Timothy was. Um, but nonetheless, Titus had, had quite a difficult job. So Paul wrote to him. This may not be the only letter that he wrote, but it's the only one we have that he wrote. And he was trying to say to him, this is what you need to do, and this is how you need to, to go about it. So that's the, the brief background. So it's the brief background of what we're reading, of to whom it was written, where they were, what they were trying to do. Um, let's now read it. And I'm guessing, I wasn't planning on doing this, but we've got a bit of extra time. I'm guessing nobody's read Titus recently, so uh, would somebody like to volunteer? Maybe let's have two people, because chapter one is the longest. Can I have two people to volunteer and just come and read it to us, please? That would be good. Yeah, Janet and Chris. Okay, Janet. If you come and you read up to, um, up to verse 9, that'd be great. And Chris, if you could read verse 10 onwards to the end. Uh, yeah, Ruth's got a mic. So. Thank you. Uh, whatever, as long as it's the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm reading from the New King James. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, and they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled." 
they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Yeah, thanks, Janet. And thanks, Chris. You did a great job standing there. I thought you said the first chapter. First ten verses. I'll go and sit down. Yeah. I, don't, I don't need Brilliant. Thank you both so much. It's a good job I stopped her then. She might have just kept going to the end of Revelation. Who knows? There's a lot in here about leadership. Um, thankfully, I'm not going to talk a lot about leadership because I think there's a lot about people. And I've got three um, short sections from this that I, I want to, to focus on. It's not going to be a, a, a kind of whole exposition, but there are three things I really want to, to hone in on. And the first is here. It's by the command of God our Saviour that I, that's Paul, have been entrusted with this work for him. The beginnings, the greetings of the New Testament letters are incredible. You get more insight into Paul, I think, through those than actually through the, the rest because he's writing about himself. He's introducing himself. It's strange that he introduces himself so formally to Titus because he travelled with Titus. So it's possible that this letter was written with the intention that actually others would read it and he's simply laying out some of his, his credentials. But he's also reinforcing something really important to Titus, something that we probably read so often that it has not had an impact on us. And it's this. It's by this command that God, of God our Saviour that I've been entrusted with this work for him. Think about that for a moment. When you entrust somebody with something, it's somebody who has the opportunity to give something very precious, very delicate perhaps, or valuable or powerful to somebody else that they really do trust. They're not just saying, hold this. They're saying, use this. They're, in a way, Paul is saying, I've been given this by God. And he's saying, go and do something with it. Go and make something out of what I have given you here. So my question is, what have you been entrusted with? What has God given you to use? You see, you can't just read this as the gospel. We've been entrusted with the, the gospel. Um, if you read through Timothy, actually, particularly Timothy 1, you'll find that the same um, image is, is used. I've been entrusted with this gospel. And yes, there is a general... In, uh, sense of the gospel that we've all been given and, and, and we can use. So uh, it was great having the story from Lydia this morning. She's entrusted with something and, and Lydia is just one of those people who uh, likes to tell everybody that she's been entrusted with it because other people need to know about it. Isn't that right, Lydia? Yeah, it is wonderful. Now, we've all been entrusted with that, but individually, we've also been entrusted with something that is tailor-made for us. The reason, the thing that drove Paul so strongly was that he knew that he'd been given something personal for him that only he could work out. Now, he'd had a particular encounter with 
with God and a particular encounter with the risen Jesus from what we read. And that had left him with something. But he's no different to any of us. He's filled with the life of God in the same way that we are. God had given something to Paul. And the, the key thing that Paul did was that he pursued it. He pursued after it. it it's a strange idea. You're given something, but you, you pursue it, in a sense, because it's a greater understanding of what it is that you've been given is always just out of reach. So Paul could write in one of his other letters, I've run the race. I've pursued it. But the question is, how do we know where to run? Is it just a general race? Everybody's in a, a, a mass like they will be in Worcester next week, all running the, the 10K or whichever section of it they run? Or is it an individual race that God has called you to? You see, I think it's the latter. I don't think the invitation into God's family is a, a general thing. God stands at the door of heaven and says, is there anybody out there? No, he speaks to you. He speaks personally. And he... He comes into your situation. And we talk a lot about God crafting us individually, God, God fashioning us, God speaking to us personally. And all of that is because there is something within God's providence that is set aside for us that is our unique I can't think of a better word than destiny. It's, it's our unique destiny to step into. Now, the more you discover it, the more it consumes you because you know that that is the very, very best way for God to be glorified through you. So we sing all these songs about God be glorified and, and, and I, I want, you know, I want to, to see this happen for you and I want to see that happen to you and we, we're talking this morning about our nation at the moment please pray for our nation it's a you know it's a serious time but the very best way for our nation to be impacted through you is for you to discover what it is that God has set before you that nobody else can do and for you to pursue it with everything that you have until the pursuit of Jesus in that becomes your consuming passion I'm not trying to take away from the pursuit of Jesus himself. But what I'm saying is that there is a manner in which you as an individual, whether you are 17 or 70 or anything in between, above or below, that you can pursue that I can't. Equally, what I'm pursuing, you can't. So don't look at other people and... Compare yourself and say, oh, I'm not as good as she is, or I'm not as, as committed as he is. That's not the question. The question is, how much do you want to apprehend what it is that Jesus died for you to have? That's a significant question for us to ask ourselves. Do you know what we call people who pursue that for all that they have? Fanatical. That's what we, you know, sometimes we, we say, oh, they're a bit fanatical for a Christian. That's just because they've found what they're supposed to be doing and they're giving everything they've got to, to do it. Nothing else matters as much. Now, that will, that will include 
the calling that God's given you in your, your family, it will almost certainly, for most of you, be the thing that you've already started into. Because you will already have started along that path. But I really want to upset you this morning and say, you have not discovered anything yet of what God has for you. There is so much more. Never, ever feel contented. Never, ever feel disqualified. Most of us will, will look at, at other people doing things and we'll say, oh, I couldn't do anything like that. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't um, take those kind of risks. I couldn't go to that place. I couldn't be that person. And, and, and we feel inferior to them because that's what um, our sinful habits will do to us. That's why Jesus died to set us free from those. That's why we want rid of all those things. If we're going to get free, let's get free of everything so that we are free to pursue what God has for us. I mean, I hope you know this, that getting forgiven and the, the whole process of being born again is the most wonderful thing that can happen to any of us. And yet it is just the beginning. When you're born, you don't just stay there and just say, oh, thank goodness, I made it out of, out of my mum's womb. You know, and you just lie there in the, in the cot for the next 70 or 80 or 90 years waiting for the end. That's not the way that life works. You've, you've been born again for a reason that you have to grow into. When it gets tough, that's good news because then you're, you're getting to a point where you're having to, to get into a different level of that, a different dimension. I don't want to, to, to give too many images that are unhelpful, but it's a journey, and some of that journey is not easy. Okay? And there are things that we, we need to walk through in order to pursue what we can end up with no choice but to pursue. Um, there is a famous quote, which many of you will, will know, written by a guy called Jim Elliot. Um, he was, a, uh, it was part of a, a missionary group. They went to um, a place in South America to reach a people group there, and they lost their lives in the, the process. But he wrote in his diary something like this. Uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The more that you apprehend your inheritance now, the, the more you will be able to enjoy the benefits of both now and in heaven when you go to be with him completely. Now, I've I spent a long time on that point, but I, the, as I prepared this, I, it, it was becoming such a huge, hugely exciting thing for me. And I just thought... I just want people to, to know this, that God has something so amazing for each of them to pursue. Whether you are retired or whether you're just at the beginning of your career, it makes no difference whatsoever. There is something to pursue. And what we do as, as God's people, as a church, when we come together, that's us all pursuing it together. And, and it will be often, I don't know, about 100 of us here this morning, you know, in some ways it will be 100 different directions, but somehow it will all be the same direction because it's all toward Jesus okay I've made my point I hope I'd, I'd just like to pray about that can we, can we just pray let me let's 
pray for you and pray for us all. Just, uh, the Holy Spirit wants to, to show us things right at this moment. So simply ask him yourselves. Holy Spirit, show me something about this. Something I can grasp hold of. Something I can see. Something I can understand. And whatever you sense him saying, if you sense him saying anything at all, just hold on to that. Make a note of it. And a, stick it in the notes on your phone or write it down or, or do something. If it's a, a familiar thought that you've had before, then continue to pursue it. If it's a fresh thought and you just think, I, where'd that come from? That's a crazy thought. I couldn't do that. Uh, that's almost certainly the Holy Spirit stretching you out beyond where you have dared to go. And he's saying, come on, come on, come on. Don't stay where you are. Move on to where I'm calling you. Leaders. Leaders, what can you do with them, eh? I mean, we've got, we've got leaders in this church. Do you want me to tell you the truth about them? They're wonderful people. They're wonderful people. They're brilliant. They really, really love Jesus. They actually really, really love you. Uh, but they're not perfect. Uh, and that's okay, because neither is everybody else. So what Paul is doing here with, with Titus is he's saying to, I suspect a younger guy, uh, and this younger guy may have to deal with some older people. Um, here are some things that are important about leaders. Um, keep these in mind when you're teaching, training, and appointing. So Titus has got authority to appoint local leaders in a town and then to go to another town and do some more teaching and appoint some more local leaders in the hope that the church will accept those local leaders and that those local leaders will be able to to bring structure to the church. Remember, this is the Wild West of Christianity. And uh, effectively, Titus is coming in and appointing a sheriff and a bunch of deputies, and then he's going and saying, good luck, people. Um, now, as you, as you read through Titus, and as you heard Janet read to us, there are a whole load of things here which, um, over the years, have caused controversy. Um, should they be men or women? Should they be called elders, presbyters, bishops, or anything else? Um, should they... Be married. Can divorced people be leaders? Uh, can people who come from a culture where uh, they've converted from, let's say, Islam and they've had four wives and they come into the, uh, the church, um, if they were to become a leader, which of their th- four wives should they keep? <laughs> it's not a problem I've ever had to deal with, but I'm certain somebody's had to deal with it. Um, uh, should they be thrown off the leadership if they get drunk? Uh, what if they're dishonest with money? What if their children aren't Christians? What if their children decide not to be Christians? What if they're just bad-tempered? We don't have any bad-tempered people amongst our leaders. That's good news. We don't, do we, sin? No, we don't. Because we've had all that bad temper just beaten out of us by years of <laughs> church leadership. 
That's, um, the key thing I want to focus on here is not the, the particulars, because there, you know, I, could, I could give you my opinion about some of these things, and then you know, there'd be 58 other opinions just amongst this body of people. But what holds all these things together is character. Uh, thank you, uh, by the way. <laughs> yeah, amen to that too. Uh, a leader should be known for hospitality and should be a lover of goodness. Those are my italics. So, um, Really, it's these leaders, they're known for hospitality and being lovers of goodness. Um, in one of the footnotes of one of the, the versions I read in preparation for this, a lover of goodness, it's also got the connotation of wanting to bring goodness out of other people, bringing the best out of other people. In other words, a leader is somebody who looks out for other people and welcomes them into their, um, their, their presence, I suppose. I mean... Hospitality, we tend to think of, of homes, and it would have been homes in this context, but it could just as easily be taking somebody for, for coffee or you know, going to something together. You want to spend time with people. You want to, to create a hospitable atmosphere. And that's what we try to do here. We, we come into a, a school every week, and we try to, to make it hospitable. That's why we've got some, some new banners. Do you notice the new banners? If you haven't noticed the new banners, shame on you. And... Um, <laughs> No shame, just shame for not noticing the banners. And uh, because we're, we're just trying to create a slightly more hospitable environment. We're trying to say, this is our place. And when, if you're a visitor and you come here, you're coming to our place. I mean, we don't own this place. That's why we're going to have our own place, um, a bigger place. Uh, take us a while to get there, but we are going to have it. But it's about hospitality and it's about goodness. Character is really important, and we don't talk about it as much as we used to in the church. It's not okay to, to have massive flaws in your character and do nothing about them. It's okay to have massive flaws in your character. What it's not okay to do is have massive flaws in your character and uh, once you've been shown them, then start to do something about them. Um, getting married was one of the things that helped me to see the massive flaws in my own character. It also had the effect of showing me the massive flaws in somebody else's character, which is another story. But one of the, the things I found with uh, teaching for so many years, particularly in a, a context where you could be open about Christianity, is that um, young people mistakenly had the idea that uh, to be a Christian, you needed to be a good person. And... Uh, I just wanted to explain to them that's not true. Being Christian is not about being a good person. But you will become uh, a better person. You'll become more Christ-like because you are a Christian, because you simply want to be like him. And so when there are people that's... And I try not to do this. I hear other people doing it, and I... It's, Sometimes I'll talk about it. When they say, oh, that's just me. I say, no, that's, that's not actually. That's, that's just your old nature. That's the nature that's dead. It's crucified. It's on the cross. Don't bother with it. It can't affect you anymore if you don't want it to. So let's see the way clear to you not living in that whatever it is. And it may be something very serious, like a, an addictive problem, or it, it may be something very serious, like you just 
got a critical heart. You know, maybe there are just certain types of people that you don't like. And maybe it's leaders. <laughs> maybe it's followers. Um, Character is important. And uh, Paul wanted Timothy to pick people that were understanding that and were, were trying to live out a good character. What are you known for? And people talk about, I'll make it personal. When people talk about Graham, I don't know what they talk about. But I don't know what I'm known for. I could guess, and some of it wouldn't be good. Um, what are we known for? That's a question for us to ask ourselves. What are we known for? Holy Spirit, what am I known for? You know, it's nice to be known for some good things, but you know, it only takes one fly to spoil the ointment, doesn't it? Um, I mean, you went into a restaurant and ordered some soup and it had a dead fly in and the waiter came and said, don't worry, it's only one. Then, <laughs> then you would say, uh, yeah, I know, but one was, was enough. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, one character flaw can, can spoil something. So let's just be aware of it and let's not be afraid of those things. Let's, let's face up to them and say, there's something there in my life that I don't like and, um, and I want rid of it. Lord, help me. Um, it's dead, I recognise that, but there are things sometimes we have to do in order to, to make sure that we can live um, alive rather than half dead. Last thing. Toward the end of this chapter, uh, I think it's verse 15, everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupt. Before we knew Jesus, we had no chance of understanding what his way was because we didn't have the, the renewed mind, the capacity. Once we do know Jesus and that uh, our old nature's dead but the process of our minds continually being renewed goes on. That's a lifelong pursuit. Um, that the Holy Spirit is there to, to help us with. Once we're on that journey, we can enjoy things from a position of purity. And that means that we don't have to make hard and fast rules about things. We don't have to be legalistic. So um, I was uh, um, at a a meeting with some, some people this week, and one of the, the guys who's part of this group um, has a, a particular habit. Uh, uh, it's a, he's a smoker. There's nothing s sinful about smoking. But for him, he feels, he's felt awkward about it for a long time. Um, but we, we all know he's a smoker. It's not a big deal. And, and none of us are judging him for that. His particular denomination, uh, they give him a hard time over it, but... None of us are there judging him because of that, because we know that he's tr it troubles him and, and we're, we're trying to help him on the journey to, to deal with that particular habit, which is, which is unhelpful for him. Um, but it's, it doesn't make him a sinner. It doesn't make him a bad person. It doesn't make him less of a believer than anybody else. It's just something that he's dealing with because he's been purified by the action of his, his salvation. We all have things that we 
it's back to the character thing. We all have things that we're, we're dealing with. That doesn't make us impure people. It just means that we are trying to move forward in that, that purity. There are a lot of things here in this society that were regarded as impure. And, and Paul is saying, look, it's not the activity that you need to look at. It's the heart that's engaging in the activity. So uh, alcohol's a, a, a good example because people have different attitudes toward that. So if somebody is someone that uh, really feels... Like the church I grew up in um, was full of lots of ex-Salvation Army folks, and uh, they were really dead set against the consumption of alcohol in any way whatsoever. Now, I grew up in a pub, uh, which is a den of iniquity. And uh, it, I think it just made them pray for me more. So I'm grateful for that, because they were really worried about me. Um, but it's, I've grown up with a different attitude to, to the consumption of, of alcohol. It, it's, it's not an issue of one is pure and one is impure. To the pure, all things are pure. If abstention brings you purity, that's okay. If consumption, moderately, brings you purity, then that's okay. If you're a Labour supporter, that's okay. If you're a Conservative supporter, that's okay. If you're a Liberal Democrat supporter, that's okay. Or any other. Because to the pure, all things are pure. Because you're doing it out of a pure heart. When we misunderstand that, that's when factions grow up. And we can see what characterises our political world are factions. Let's not have that characterise the church. We've had enough of that. To the pure, all things are pure. Okay, let's pray. Father, help us as we consider this book to understand what you're saying and to find ways for ourselves of working this out of putting things into practice. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that you love us. And we ask you to bring more and more revelation to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.